love Christmas. I don't know about you guys, but it is just Christmas is almost it's the greatest way to like wrap up the year and and you have all the dreams. But I'm going to tell you, when it comes to New Year's and New Year's resolutions, I am a New Year's resolution Grinch. I mean, just the words New Year's resolution makes my stomach start tightening because I know with that is all of these expectations to do and to be and to have and to, so let me throw a few words out at you. New Year's resolution, diet, budget, time management, expectations. Anybody tense yet? There are some things that just naturally make us tense up because we're thinking, this means there's something else I have to do. And I'm going to tell you, after Christmas, I am ready for a vacation for my vacation. Because there's so much going on that you just think, okay, finally the New Year's here and I can get started. And everybody's going, what's your New Year's resolution? My New Year's resolution is to survive the new year. But we can't live in survival mode. We have to have purpose and direction to accomplish what God has put ahead of us in a new year. There's an article by Regan Walsh. She's a New York University life coach. And she wrote an article for the Harvard Business Review that had to do with time management. And the article is titled, Shifting from Survival to Purpose. And I was like, Regan, that's a good title. I'm going to use it. So thank you, Regan, if you happen to be watching my podcast tonight. (laughs) But when we don't understand the past and we don't understand or have clear objectives for our future and we lack our solitude and our focus, then everything shifts from purpose to survival. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to live in survival mode. You know, the brain does not know the difference between real and perceived danger. So we can build up something in our mind. We can self-talk in our head and get ourselves all stressed up over dangers that don't exist. And our brain doesn't understand that. Our brain goes into that Fight or flight, it goes into that, you know, there is a danger here, we have to do something. And when we are living in survival mode, we are constantly putting ourselves in that place of our brain thinking there's imminent danger. So we have to respond. You know, we're not unique to that concept of of feeling like I'm just surviving at the moment. Even the disciples experienced that. After Jesus died, I mean, he's on the cross. They've taken his lifeless body down. They've placed it in a borrowed tomb. The skies went dark. There's thunderstorms. The veil of the temple is torn in two from the top to bottom. And the disciples go into survival mode. They go back to the place where they felt safe. They go back to a room and they lock the doors out of fear. And they are sitting there thinking, what's going to happen next? And I imagine they were asking, what just happened? I mean, did Jesus tell us he was going to die? Did he tell us this was the end? Was this what it was supposed to be? Is this what we've been walking with him for the last three years for it to come to a crucifixion? 
Is this what it's all about? I imagine, and rightfully so, there were hundreds of questions and fears going through their minds. John chapter 20, verses 19 and 20 says, On that evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and he stood among them. And he said, Peace be with you. In other words, survival mode is over. We're about to get a purpose. After he said that, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Fear paralyzes us. Fear puts us in a place that we can't act, we can't react. We can't respond. We don't know what we're supposed to do. We don't, can't take the next step. Fear paralyzes us. It brings confusion. It brings darkness. It brings a sense of panic into our lives. But when Jesus walked into the room, suddenly there was focus. There was that sense of, was that even real? You're here. We can focus on you now, and you will let us know what we're supposed to do. Focus brings perspective. And then that faith began to once again rise up in their heart. And Jesus was able then to take them through a period of defining for them what the next steps were. What was their purpose? What are you called to? What has God put you here in this moment, in this time, to accomplish? A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. And the doors were locked. They hadn't quite got it yet. Jesus came and stood among them again and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, who had doubted, because when they told Thomas that Jesus was alive, he wasn't there at the first appearance. He said, Guys, I'm sorry. I've got to put my hands, my fingers into his hands. I've got to feel where they pierced him with a sword in his side. I want to know that this is really Jesus. Jesus looked at Thomas and he said, It's okay. Put your hand in my side. Feel where they put the spear. Look at my hands. Look where they were pierced. Stop doubting and believe. Doubting will keep us from believing. Even though our heart may want to, that doubt in our mind will keep us from believing what God wants to accomplish. Well, later on, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he starts to tell them to come where he is, to be with him, to go where he's going. And again, the disciples are like, what? <laughs> there are no GPS coordinates for what you just said. We don't know where you're going. We don't know what you're doing. We don't know the way. How are we going to get there? And Jesus simply says again, bring your focus back. I'm the way. Follow after me. What happens next? Sometimes that can be a hard next step to take. Sometimes it can be hard to understand. Like the disciples didn't totally understand what Jesus was saying when he said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Follow me and you'll know where I'm going. Then you'll be where I am. Jesus is simply telling them, focus on me. Don't worry about it. Don't stress Remember that I'm the way, and you follow me, and we're going to get to the same destination. 
But there are things that come along with those steps, with moving from focusing into our purpose that sometimes are traps for us. There are things that keep us from being able to respond in the way that we need to. Maybe even just confusion of how are we supposed to get there? So what are some traps that keep us in survival mode and keep us from moving toward our purpose? The first one is expectation. And you know, expectation can come from others, and we can also put unrealistic expectations on ourselves. If I have a weakness, I have a problem thinking that I can't do it all. And sometimes the hardest words for me to say are no. And I say yes all the time. Sure, we can do that. Sure, we can get that done. Sure, I know just who to do that job for us. And it's easier to just to keep saying yes than it is to slow down and say no. The expectations can rob us of understanding and fulfilling our purpose. The second thing is challenges. Challenges can be good if they spur us on and motivate us, but challenges can also be those things that are negative that we focus on. I can't, you know, I can't do it because, you know, I can't get to church on Wednesday night at 6.30 because I get, don't get off work until 4.30, so I have to have at least two hours to regroup after work. No, just come on. We're, we're good with work clothes and whatever. It's all right. Just come. We can always find a reason why we can't. We can always find a reason not to, or we can put challenges in front of ourselves to keep us focused on the negative rather than focusing on how that challenge can be a motivation for us. The third thing are habits. Boy, those are the things that come New Year's and we start talking about resolutions. We have to face some of those habits. And sometimes before we can move out of that survival mode, we have to acknowledge the fact that we have some habits that are keeping us from moving forward. It's easier to go back to what we know, what we've always done. What did the disciples do when Jesus was crucified? Some of them went back to fishing. That's what they knew. That was their habit. They knew how to do that. They could fish in their sleep. When I don't know what to do, I fall back on that habit so that I feel a little bit more comfortable. And for all of us, those habits are very different things. But sometimes we just have to acknowledge that habits exist that are keeping us from moving to that place of purpose. And the fourth thing that keeps us from moving as a trap we can fall into is distractions. Now, we all understand distractions. We get them all day long. There are human distractions. There are things that come up. There are things at work. There are things at home. That There are people that need our attention. And there are technological distractions. Do you know that we touch our cell phones an average of 2,600 times a day? We swipe it, we click it, we touch it. We want to see what that little bell that just chirped was. A few weeks ago, for some strange reason, I got a beeping in my ear. And I was kept going around, what is that beeping? Getting my phone, you know, somebody must be messaging me. Well, it was something in my inner ear that was off that was causing it. You know, like if you had a ringing in your ear, I was getting a beeping. So I'm checking my phone constantly because if it's beeping, it must be important. But interruptions can rob us, can cause us to fall back into that trap of being in survival mode. 
It takes 26 minutes after a distraction to refocus on what we were working on or what was going on before that disruption happened. I've been telling my family that ever since I read that statistic. 26 minutes, you just interrupted me. Well, there are things that we can do to help us avoid those traps. And the first and probably most of the, one of the most powerful things that we can do is often the hardest thing to do, and that's facing the challenge of solitude. If Jesus himself recognized the importance and the value of pulling away into a place of solitude for prayer, for just time alone with God, time to focus, time to think, time to be away from the pulls and the stresses of the crowd, and to enter into a time that he was just with God. Now, we could spend a whole series talking about the next six points I'm going to point out to you, but these are just six times that Jesus realized the importance of solitude. The first was to prepare for a major task. In Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 and then 14 and 15, after he was baptized, he went away by himself for 40 days in the wilderness. Now, we look at this and they say, wait a minute, Jesus, you got some momentum going. You know, your, your website is really lighting up right now. I think you're going to go viral. You don't need to disappear right now. And Jesus is saying, yes. This is the most important time for me to pull away and to focus fully through prayer and fasting my attention on the Father as he prepared for the major task that was ahead of him. The second time we see Jesus pulling aside and going into solitude was to recharge after hard work. Mark chapter 6, verse 30 and 32, Jesus sent the 12 disciples out to do ministry. He had prepared them, and now he was releasing them. It was like he'd had these interns, and he's saying, okay, now go out and do what I've taught you, what I've showed you, what I've lived in front of you. And when they went out, Jesus pulled away to a time to separate from the people who were following him. And he told them when they came back, they needed to rest. They needed to rest from those that were following and to separate from everything else. And sometimes that is the biggest challenge we face because everything in our life is important. There are no trivial things. Everything is important. And if you don't think that, just, you know, try to do something else. Try to go and just relax for a minute. And sometimes it's hard for me because... I go and I sit down and I remember, you know, I really need to clean out that refrigerator after Christmas. Or did I fold those clothes or did I just put them on the couch? There's always something in my head that needs my attention. But Jesus is saying the most important thing we can do is not let things continually crowd in and press in on us, but sometimes to pull away because when we do, then we're more prepared when the next task, the next challenge the next thing that needs our attention comes. We are rested, we're refreshed, and we're ready to go. Jesus also pulled a time aside for a time of solitude when he was in grief. Matthew 14, Jesus learned that his cousin John the Baptist had been beheaded. 
and he went away by himself. You know what? Even the Son of God took time to grieve. And in our busy, chaotic, demanding, hectic worlds, pull-it-together-guy kind of attitude, we sometimes need to just take the time to grieve. And from those of us that have experienced times of grief, you know how important it is. After my father passed away, there was so much going on and everybody coming and everybody, you know, needing something and family and making sure my mom was taken care of and the funeral arrangements were made. It was just like for a few days there, there was not even a moment to stop and think. It was just, I need to do, I need to do, I need to do. And there was no time there to rest. And my husband gave me some great advice. He said, why don't you stay here for a few days and just relax and just rest. And that week, week and a half, that I was able just to pull aside, be by myself, and reflect and grieve was one of the best gifts I've ever been given because it allowed me to grieve for my father in my own way without other people's expectation of what my grief was supposed to look like or not supposed to look like. But it allowed me to have that moment and even Jesus took that moment when he lost his cousin to, to death. The next time we see Jesus pulling aside is when he had an important decision to make. Luke chapter 6, early in his ministry, Jesus spent the whole night in prayer. And the next day we see Jesus starting the process of calling his disciples. We get hit sometimes with decision fatigue. There are so many things that need us to make a decision. They need to be right now. We get an email. We get a text. We get a notification. Some decision's got to be made. Something's got to be done. And sometimes we just need to pause. And all the time we need to pause and turn our focus back on the Lord and say, God, you know the decisions that's coming up. You know the task I have to face. You know the important things that are ahead in my life. And I need your perspective. Jesus also drew aside in times of distress. We all know the story in Luke when Jesus went to the garden, to the Mount of Olives shortly before he was arrested. And he prayed and he asked his disciples, pray with me. Sometimes we just need somebody in the moments of our distress to pray with us. And if you read the story of Jesus' prayer, you know what distress he was facing. To the point that even he said, God, if there's another way, I'm in for it. But yet he came back and he said, but really, Father, it's not my will, but it's yours. Now help me to walk through this. In a time of distress, we need that solitude. We need that time with God to express our stress at what's about to happen, to express to him our distress in the crisis of the moment, and then to come back full circle to abandoning of our plans and embracing God's plans. And finally, I want to point out that Jesus focused on prayer. When he took time to pull aside, it wasn't to binge watch. 
It wasn't to, I'm just going to lay by the pool by a few days and read a good book. Those are great, but that wasn't what Jesus was pulling aside for. Those moments of solitude were for him to pray. And there was often fasting. We're getting ready to go into a period of time of fasting and prayer as we head into the Lent season and Easter. And I've announced to my family that the refrigerator has officially been purged. <laughs> there is a tray of about 20 cupcakes on my counter right now. They are out of here because for the next period of time, physically, spiritually, emotionally, and According to the bathroom scale, those things need to go away for a while. <laughs> what Jesus focused on was his time of prayer and fasting so that he could know that he knew exactly what the Father's expectations were. Not his, not other people's, but what does God want in this money, in this moment? Pablo Picasso said one time, without solitude, no serious work is possible. Now, I don't know how serious you take Picasso, but we know that he did some amazing things with paints. And even he said, sometimes you just got to stop and enter into a place of solitude. So how do we do that? How did God call us to take those next steps? We're to be stewards. The scripture tells us we're to be stewards of our time, our money, and our talent. But do you know money is the only thing that comes with a percentage point on it? 10% of our income, 10% of our money belongs to God right off the top. And then he tells us to give gifts and offerings and meet the needs of those around us. Wouldn't it be nice if time came with a percentage? Okay, I want you to give 10% to this, 15% to that, 25% to this, 30% to something else. But we, unfortunately, are in a situation of time poverty. There's no joy when we are living in time stresses. Laughter and motivation are at all-time lows when people feel in stress for time. 88% of Americans say they don't have enough time. If I could get one more thing, it wouldn't be money. It wouldn't be vacation days. They would like more time. Time reflects our motivation. You see, because we find time to do the things we really want to do. We find time to do the things we're really motivated to do. And motivation comes from two places. Motivation is intrinsic and motivation is extrinsic. Now, what does that mean? Intrinsic means the things that are on the inside, the things that motivate me internally, maybe my curiosity or my wonder. Maybe the sense of fulfillment motivates me to use my time in a particular way, or maybe just a desire, a desire to accomplish something, a desire to see something, a desire to be something, a desire to Maybe pick up something that we once enjoyed and have walked away from. Those things are the things internally that motivate us to use our time. There are things externally or extrinsically that motivate us to use our time. Money. We all want to go to work because we want to get the paycheck on Friday. 
We all want to go to work. We want to get that raise at the end of the quarter. We want to get that promotion that's coming up. So we're going to take this extra time that we have, and we're going to work, 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 so we can get ahead. Or it can be praise, praise from other people. Maybe that motivates us. Or maybe it's the fact that we want the prestige that comes with People seeing us make certain accomplishments. Those are things that affect us from the outside, and they're all things that take the attention of our time. So we have to be good stewards. We have to be good stewards of our money. We have to be good stewards of our time. How are we going to volunteer? How are we going to work to help our church? How are we going to reach out to the widows and the orphans like the scripture tells us? If all of our time is consumed with things that are not working towards that sense of purpose in our life. Our time can be consumed before we even realize it. Our time can be eaten up and gone and we realize at the end of the day we didn't get halfway through that to-do list. We didn't do the things that were really important. Maybe we really wanted to just sit down and talk with our kids, but somehow the day slipped away. So we need to be good stewards of our time. And we need to be good stewards of our talent. Do you know talents are the only things, and I'm not talking about the scriptural like money when we see in the parable of the talents, but I'm talking about those giftings that God has given us, those things that God has put in our hands to use to accomplish his purpose. We'll go back to that illustration of the servants and the money they were given by the master. When they were given ten talents and five talents and one talents, they are the only thing that can be multiplied. What do you do if you want to learn to play the piano? You practice. And what happens when you practice? You get better. You strengthen that talent that God has given you. There's a story told of a woman in the pioneer days when they had gone out west, horse and buggy. She was the first one in their community to get a wood-burning stove. I mean, her husband had worked. They had saved. They had ordered it, and finally this stove arrived. And she put it in their little house and... She had this beautiful stove, and she was the only one in the community that had a stove. So you know what she did with it? She started making soup. And the newspaper ran a story about her and this stove and her making soup and giving it to the families in her community that were less fortunate. Or just anybody that was hungry had a place at her table. Now, I know this story because I found it in my own family's genealogy. That was my great-great-grandmother. And she was the first one to, what talent did she have? She could make soup. So what do we do? We use what's in our hands. We use what God has given us. When the, the master returned and he said to his servants that used what he had given them well, well done, good and faithful servants. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll make you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Jesus opened that door to his, to his disciples when he reappeared to them after his resurrection and he said, Come on, 
Let me make you a part of my happiness. They rejoiced when they saw him. They rejoiced when they realized that, hey, Jesus is not dead. This is not over. The crucifixion was not the end. And Jesus began to show them what was going to be ahead, what their purpose was, what their calling was. But he also told them that they were going to need to be empowered. If you're going to share in the master's joy, then you have to be empowered. Jesus said to them in Matthew 28 verse 19, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, this is what I want you to do. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And by the way, I am with you every step of the way. You see, they moved from that group of people that were crowded into a room in survival mode behind locked doors to being filled with the Holy Spirit as Jesus instructed them to go to the upper room, wait to be empowered, and when that empowerment came, then they were out in the streets. How did they know how to make disciples? Because Jesus had made them disciples. How did they know how to baptize? Because Jesus had shown them by example what being baptized was, was about. How did they know what to teach? They remembered the teachings that Jesus had given them. So what do we do now? We do the important things. First, we focus on God. And if I could use an, an analogy for that, heart to heart. Let's take those moments of solitude and let's focus heart to heart on our relationship with God. Lord, I want to know your heart. There's a scripture in the Psalms that says he directs our thoughts like water in an irrigation ditch, like he does for kings. Lord, I want to be close enough to you that you will direct my thoughts. I want to have that heart-to-heart -heart solitude time with you. And then on a personal level, what is that hand-to-hand? -hand? What am I going to do with God, what God has given me? What am I going to do with this calling? What am I going to do with this purpose now that I know what it is? How am I going to respond? That's the hand-to-hand -hand part. That's the making soup. I have a stove. I can make soup. I might not do a lot of other things, but I can do what God's put in my hand to do. And thirdly, I can focus on other people. That's the eye-to-eye -eye contact. How many times do we talk to people, or should I say people talk to us, and we're looking around them, we're looking over them, we're thinking about what we've got to do next, we're thinking about one comes next, and it's, oh, yes, God bless you, I'm going to pray for you. A few years ago, the Lord kind of convicted me of saying that. And it was like, well, can't you pray now? And I'm like, well, yeah, I can, but I've got to be on the piano in four minutes. Well, how long does it take you to pray? I don't know if you talk to God like that, but, you know, God and I have some very interesting conversations. I was driving to work one morning, and I said, Lord, I give you this day. And in my head was, no, I gave you this day. And I'm like, oops, sorry. 
So those are the kind of conversations I have with God. But when I'm focused on God and I'm focused on what God is putting my hands, then I can realize that I need to take the time to be sensitive to the needs of people around me. And it might be a two-minute prayer. God, you know what is going on in their life. And more importantly, you know the answer. And right now, Lord, we, you said if two agree, we're going to agree together that this is yours. We're going to give it to you. And I'm still going to be in the, on the piano in two and a half minutes. Let's move from survival mode. Nobody wants to live there in panic and stress and anxiety. We want to move through our lives with a sense of purpose. And we do that very simply. Enjoy the solitude with God. Focus on the task at hand. Identify the habits that are keeping you in survival mode. And then do what Jesus did. Lead by example. Understand what motivates you. Is what motivates me pure and honest, good, just, of noble report? Or am I being motivated for my own self-gain? And then whatever that next step is, it may be for you that you think, you know what? I need to pull aside with the Lord more. I need to focus on the Lord more. It may That next step may be, Lord, you know, I feel like I've had some, some great moments in solitude with you now. How do I take that and put it in my hands and make something productive? How do I go about fulfilling this purpose you put before me? Whatever that next step is, and it might simply be, that you're at the point that you're saying, Jesus, I don't have a relationship with you. God, I know you, I know about you, but there are no heart-to-heart -heart moments between us. And if you're in that point tonight and you're watching and you want to make that commitment to Jesus, that commitment to God to say, Lord, I want my heart and your heart to be one, it's so simple. He just says, ask. Just ask me and I'll respond. Believe me. Just like Thomas, it's all right to doubt. I'm not going to condemn you for your doubts, but accept and believe me. And then just confess that, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. How simple that can that be? Trust, believe, and respond. And if you're in that point that you're a follower of Christ, and maybe you're thinking, I don't know what 2024 holds. Welcome to the boat. None of us do. Whoever dreamed what the last few years would be like. But we know that God, who formed everything, who spoke everything to end existence, has no problem with handling 2024. So whatever the next step is, step out of survival and step into purpose. Let's pray. Father, your word is so beautiful. Your word is so personal. Lord, your word is so empowering. Father, I pray tonight as we look towards a new challenge, a new year, a new purpose, a new direction, God, that will not get caught up in things that are just not on your heart, but that this year, this moment, this day, our hearts will search your heart and your heart will search our heart so that we can be of one mind and one accord and one spirit. In the name of your Son, amen.